coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for listening, whether it be on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. We appreciate that. Let's start the show with our guest for the show, and that would be Representative Shay Roberts joining me. By the way, I didn't realize this. We, we could even be related, for all I know. Uh, I don't know if you have cousins in Northwest Georgia, but we'll figure that out later. Uh, you and I are both also uh, realtors, so we could talk some house shop uh, uh, at some other point in time as well. <laughs> but we've got so much more to dive into. First of all, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we got word, of course, that the Georgia Supreme Court decided to uphold the uh, Georgia six-week abortion ban. I wanted to get your thoughts on that first and foremost. Well, I'm also a an attorney and... Um, at my firm, we have advanced this well-established uh, legal principle that if you pass legislation that's unconstitutional at the time, then it's void from its inception. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really disappointed with the decision. I agree with Justice Ellington's dissent. Um, I think we've just rewarded Republicans and Governor Kemp for blatantly disregarding 50 years of U.S. Supreme Court precedent. No one knew that Roe was going to be overturned mm-hmm. when they passed that in 2019. And once again, they've shown their, they believe they're above the law, and we've just rewarded them with it. And it's just a shame. I think we're ultimately going to win on the substantive claims of that the ban violates the uh, Georgia Constitution's right to privacy. But it's just a shame that Georgians are deprived of their fundamental rights as we wait for this to weave its way through the courts. I was going to ask, is there a way for this to now see its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, even though we know the numbers there are stacked against a woman's right to choose anyway? Well, I mean, the the effect of Dobbs is that it pushed all of the law around abortion down to the state legislature. So uh, there's really nowhere for us to go at this point. Um, But again, I am hopeful and optimistic that um, the Georgia Supreme Court will at least uphold the right to privacy because that's going to extend well beyond just abortion rights. And um, I hope they wouldn't (laughs) set a precedent um, that denies Georgians their right to privacy. Well, Counselor, then tell me, uh, when when is that uh, showing up on the docket or do we have any clue on that yet? Um, I don't, I honestly don't know. I think it's going to be a while. And then, you know, depending on Judge McBurney's decision, we're going to go through appeals again, so I, I can't imagine that it's going to be um, within this next year. It, it'll be a while. We're with Representative Shea Roberts from the Georgia House, and this isn't a decision that just appears in a vacuum. You and I uh, started uh, reaching out to each other uh, a week or so ago when Forbes' latest healthcare rankings show that Georgia was the worst state in the United States for overall health care. And I think this decision sort of dovetails into that. Would you like to elaborate? Oh, it absolutely does. Um, in addition to be having the worst health care system in the country, we also have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country. Um, we have, I think, the third highest uninsured rate. And so these abortion bans are dangerous. Um, we have doctors that are telling us, that they're checking with their attorneys or their malpractice carriers before they render life-saving care because they fear going to jail or losing their livelihood. We're hearing from 
um, interns and residents, they're not going to stay in Georgia because um, they want to provide evidence-based care for their patients without the fear of going to jail or losing their livelihood. So we already have a shortage of healthcare workers in the state. And to pass these regressive, extreme um, laws like the abortion ban, we are only making it more dangerous for Georgians uh, and only exacerbating this catastrophic system that we're in already. And living in Atlanta, where we're already down a level one trauma center uh, within the city of Atlanta, it, it, this this sort of highlights the, the need for more healthcare professionals uh, in the state and in the metro Atlanta area. But the effects of folks not wanting to come practice in Georgia can really be felt in rural counties. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've been feeling it the most. I think 11 hospitals have closed over the last decade, um, and a lot of those are in rural areas. And one, it's not the solution for everything, but if Governor Kemp would just fully expand Medicaid, Mm -hmm. um, we would see these hospitals being able to stay in business. Essentially, Poor people are having to use the emergency room as their primary care physician because they can't afford insurance. They're in that gap. Um, And the hospitals can't turn away somebody that walks into an emergency room and they're not getting paid for those services. So it's it's really causing a strain on our hospitals. Um, It's not encouraging doctors to stay here. And we're one of 10 states in the country that hasn't fully expanded Medicaid. Instead, Governor Kemp is pushing through his new pathways program in three months, they've only gotten 1300 people signed up. This is insane. We could insure almost a half a million people if we fully expand Medicaid at much less cost. And meanwhile, he's giving away our hard earned tax federal tax dollars that are going to other States because he refuses to expand. So it's in my opinion, fiscally irresponsible and cruel. What are your thoughts on that sign-up number? Uh, it was uh, 1,343 in three months. Why is it that low? <laughs> um, if I had to guess, it's similar to why we've had, um, what is it, 100,000 people dropped off of Medicaid as a result of the Medicaid unwinding. Hmm. I don't think there's enough resources that are educating people on how to sign up, how to re-sign up, Um, I think I saw something in the paper the other day that said the largest percentage of those that have come off of Medicaid have been because of errors on their forms. Um, So we need to be putting more resources into getting people the care and the insurance that they need. And when we're sitting on $11 billion dollars, and I don't like calling it a surplus. I think we're underfunding the government. Our right. state tax dollars are just sitting there. And that's on top of the rainy day fund that's required, um, which is another almost, uh, $5 billion plus dollars. So there is no excuse for what is going on right now. We need to take care of our people because guess what? Healthy people can work and take care of their families. Mm-hmm. You uh, you mentioned the number it would cost to expand Medicaid. I believe it's what three hundred fifty million over the course of a decade, which is like a drop in the bucket when you're sitting on nearly seventeen billion dollars in both rainy day and in, in surplus funding. Right. I, I just I again it it boggles the mind. I talk to folks who are, are conservatives by nature, 
in Canada, for example, and Canadian conservatives wouldn't dare get rid of their uh, universal government-funded health care because they realize it's good for business. Why is it so hard to make that argument here in the U.S.? Well, it's it's not in most states. We're one of ten. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the thing is, if you look at the studies on those states that have fully expanded, yes, there is cost on the front end, but it starts to pay for itself because you have a healthier workforce, group of citizens, yes. and workforce. Taxpayers, yes. yes. Um, but I mean, I just think we have some red states with leadership that refuses to. Uh, associate itself with anything that folks have at one time or another called Obamacare. <laughs> yeah, and well, and there's also that the pride factor. No one wants to admit that they were wrong on something. And, and listening, I, listen, I, I'm I'm of the mind that like the Affordable Care Act is not a perfect law. It does not solve everything. We still see increases no. in health care coverage, uh, although a, a, a slower pace of growth of health care coverage. It, it's not the end all be all. Of course, we have to make things more complicated in the U.S. But it was a step in the right direction, at least in the 40 states that decided to take it up fully. I totally agree. That's why I said it's it's something that we can do easily that would help this situation that we found ourselves of being worst in the country. But yes, we, we definitely have more work to do. I mean, our mental health care system is non-existent. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, and folks are crying out for for help there i mean when our jails have the best mental health care in the state that's a problem and so yeah it it tends to be the only mental health facility available actually mhm which is why they're well there's lots of reasons why they're overflowing but um yeah. that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> well but when we sit here and we talk about the 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 fact that the state is sitting on 11.7 billion I mean, you have to like sit there and maybe start making out a list of things that that money could be going to. But the reality is it's probably going to wind up being some sort of a a rebate in some form or fashion. Would I be wrong to assume that? (laughs) Um, I don't know what um, Governor Kemp is actually thinking. Uh, I think I read that he um, did tell the departments to look at uh, ways that they could um, increase their budgets by, it was a very small percentage, mm. but it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't do some sort of rebate again. Um, but remember that $250 is only going to right. people who actually have to pay taxes. The poorest people didn't get that $250. See, and that's so, the thing that infuriates me. You and I are both realtors. And so we know that when there's any sort of like a property tax rebate or a cut or anything like that, the tenants don't see that. The landlords just take it for themselves. It doesn't get yep. to, you know, the folks who need it the most. Correct. Ugh. So, I mean, and, you know, I'm not discounting that $250 may go a long way yeah. in some households, but it's so short term <laughs> and mm-hmm. we could, we could make those dollars go so much further for so many more people. Um, and again, Eleven billion just sitting, not earning interest. Not well, it might be earning a little oh, bit. But I hope much. it is. Yeah, please tell me it's earning interest. <laughs> Let's hope so. Right. I mean, I hope that's not their strategy. Oh. This, this is some sort of you know investment building thing with our tax dollars. But um, yeah, uh, it's just ridiculous to me, and I hate calling it a surplus because when you continue to underfund the government, that's and take credit that you've somehow been this 
fiscal stalwart. No, you're just not helping the, the citizens of Georgia who really need it in ways that are not complicated and not super expensive. No, so. I agree a thousand percent. I, we, we, we highlighted this last week. We talked about how, uh, you know, high-speed rail, uh, mass transit, uh, even having transit options in smaller cities, uh, smaller than Atlanta, uh, in Augusta and Macon, and, you know, just all the having, having a rail between Athens and Atlanta so that uh, kids could stay home while still going to school at the university if they wanted to. Marta to mm-hmm. Kennesaw, you know, people could still live in Clayton County and go to Kennesaw State. These are the sorts of things that come up when you're sitting on $11.7 billion. But who am I? I'm just a radio guy who does a show. Well, I just went to a meeting with Marta and, um, now I understand how little money goes from the, from the state goes to the MARTA projects. It's a lot of federal money, yeah. um, but they are definitely working on trying to improve the systems. And I know Cobb and Gwinnett have a referendum again on their uh, ballots for extending at least bus rapid transit out into those areas. So hopefully we will start to see. You know, rail is super expensive, especially when we've developed Atlanta kind of backwards um, and the infrastructure to uh, to put heavy rail in in the city is pretty cost prohibitive. But there are lots of options that we've explored in other cities and we've got to get some cars off the road and make it so that people can get to their jobs in a timely fashion. No, I agree a thousand percent. continue to grow. Yeah. We never seem to talk about how expensive it is to add another lane to the interstates. You know what I mean? Well, I live in my district. It is up in the area of the 285-400 expansion going on right now. So let me tell you, I'm living that every day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Representative Shea Roberts, I appreciate you giving us the time on The Ron Show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Later in the show, the Trump associates are dropping like flies. We've got the latest and her Academy Award worthy performance when the Ron Show returns on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. First, it was Scott Hall, then it was Sidney Powell, then it was Kenneth Chesborough, and then this morning, Jenna Ellis. And by the way, the Academy Award for Supporting Actress in the attempt to overthrow the government goes to Jenna Ellis. Take a listen to this. Thank you, Your Honor, for the opportunity to address the court. As an attorney who is also a Christian, oh, please. I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all of my dealings. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. Uh In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. Bravo, young lady. Bravo. I mean, whatever. She got what she 
sought by pleading down. But let's take you back to a different tone from Miss Jen Ellis, November 19th, 2020. Excuse me, that we're not out to the questions at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, excuse me, we're not at the questions at this point. My, uh, my name is Jenna Ellis, and I'm the senior legal advisor uh, to the Trump campaign. And I'd like to just explain now uh, where we've been and where we're at, and what you can expect from this process. By the way, she waited to speak after Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, both of whom she, of course. Uh, refers to when crying before the court, talking about how uh, attorneys who have been at this a lot longer than she has <laughs> misled her. Uh, okay, so that's a little bit of a bus throwing under there. Uh, well, Sydney's already uh, taken her plea deal. Rudy famously has not yet. But anyway, let's again, I want you to listen to the difference in tone and tenor from Jenna Ellis, uh, emboldened in late November 2020 versus now. So what you have heard, I'm sure, in the fake newspapers tomorrow will be one of two things. Either there was not sufficient evidence that we've presented or we spoke too long. Mm. Okay, so what you've heard now is basically an opening statement. This is what you can expect to see when we get to court to actually have a full trial on the merits, to actually show this evidence in court Mm -hmm. and prove our case. This is not a law and order episode where everything is neatly wrapped up in 60 minutes. Although I must give her credit again, if we're going to talk about law and order episodes, she'd be a shoe in for, you know, one of those guest supporting roles because her acting today, ah, chef's kiss on point, young lady. Those of you who are here in this room or have maybe tuned out in other networks, (laughs) clearly you've never been court reporters. (laughs) Trials take time. Putting on evidence takes time. This is basically an opening statement so the American people can understand what the networks have been hiding Mm. and what they refuse to cover because all of your fake news headlines are dancing around the merits of this case. The the merits that today she confesses didn't exist, but she was misled by the older lawyers, y'all, so cut her a break. (laughs) Let me be very clear that our objective is to make sure to preserve and protect election integrity. Uh President Trump, President Trump has been saying from day one that this is about maintaining free and fair elections in this country. And what better way to protect election integrity than by having people break into a rural Georgia County elections office and not only look at the data, but take the software so you can piddle around with it and figure out other ways to alter the outcomes as your current, I'm sorry, then current client sought. Okay, let's go back to Jenna Ellis, November 19th, 2020, remembering now that we just heard her this morning bawling like a child caught with her hand in the cookie jar who knew better all along, but her older brother made her do it. It is not about overturning an outcome. It Uh is about making sure that election integrity is preserved, and every American should want that. Mm. If every American is not on board with that, you have to ask yourself why. And if your fake news network is not covering this or allowing you to cover it fairly and accurately, you should ask yourself why. This is absolutely a legitimate legal basis. We have been asked to provide an entire case that generally would take years in civil litigation. (laughs) I've been a prosecutor. I have tried cases with far simpler facts. One thing happened, 
in a matter of minutes and it still takes days. And we go through a jury process. This is the court of public opinion right now. Mm -hmm. We are not trying our case in the court of public opinion because if we were, we would get unbiased jurors. I would strike 99% of you from the jury and I would be allowed to because of the fake news coverage you provide. You are not unbiased jurors. Back to today. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. Masterful performance. More Ron Show after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at RonShowATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Earlier today, near the Atlanta Marta Lindbergh Station, we got a taste of the state of the Beltline. For those who are not aware, the Beltline is a 22-mile path that encircles the inner parts of the city of Atlanta, connecting in-city neighborhoods with what is right now a mostly walking, jogging, biking trail. To be clear, from its inception, by then-Georgia Tech student Ryan Greville in 1999, the Beltline was to include transit. You wouldn't know that to listen to folks from organizations that represent current nearby Beltline residents and businesses that are against the transit part of the Beltline equation. There literally is this organization called Better Atlanta Transit, and they are opposed to the light rail streetcar that has been part of the Beltline DNA from day one. They are what many of us would call NIMBYs. Developers, many house flippers, eager to see the redevelopment of Atlanta's inner city neighborhoods and the promise of connectivity, not just by walking your dog or taking a jog to a nearby park on the Beltline, but transit options that would take vehicles off city streets and major arteries to get to and from their jobs, invested in these developments and redevelopments, knowing that a population would be coming, and the population has come. And now that a lot of that population and businesses have settled in, they enjoy what they have, which is a really nice green space connected by walking, jogging, and biking trails, but also with a rather large median set aside for, I don't know, oh, yes, the streetcar, the light rail. That was part of the Beltline's DNA all along. Today, the Atlanta Beltline folks gave their State of the Beltline pitch, and they spoke about how complete the program is. I believe it's about 85%. They were joined by city leaders, which included Mayor Andre Dickens, to remind folks that transit is vital to its future. 
and had to, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution characterized, had to push back against this opposition group that is now urging the city to drop the light rail transit portion altogether. Irony in that they call themselves Better Transit Atlanta because they don't offer better options for Atlanta transit. They're just against the streetcar portion, the light rail portion of the Beltline's initial concept. There to represent Better Transit Atlanta was Billy Linville, a lobbyist, a fossil fuel anti-transit lobbyist, as Alex Ip with the Xylom characterizes him in a tweet earlier today. He also points out that Linville's clients include Delta, Tesla, and Racetrack, the chain of gas stations. When speaking to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter about the Beltline and the streetcar component, Billy said, a disruptive streetcar on the Beltline may take away things Atlantans love and damage the Beltline as we know it today. A beautiful green trail that thousands of people use every day. Let's have a public discussion about our transit needs throughout the city before we commit to billions of taxpayer dollars on a streetcar that will take decades to build. First of all, it's already kind of damning that it's going to take decades to build this because we're long overdue for needing it now. So even having this discussion is kind of wasting our time. Second of all, the plan is actually to implement a green track. That's right. There is now an effort to ensure that the rail line moves through a corridor of grass as opposed to concrete. I would invite Billy to just sit alongside the current Atlanta streetcar path, and it passes some downtown parks where there are benches he can sit and enjoy the sound of near nothingness as that streetcar winds by. It makes very little noise. I believe you you might hear the bell from time to time as it approaches a stop. That's about all the noise it makes. Very little noise. And with technology giving us greener options, like solar power, for example, there may even be less need for the wires that we would see being weaved in and out of nearby trees along the belt line. But that's, you know, you know pie-in-the-sky stuff. I am, however... Just going to point out that the air quote disruptive streetcar he speaks of, first of all, isn't exactly going to be swooshing through the Beltline at 60 miles an hour and doesn't make a whole lot of noise. I pulled up some uh, audio, actually video, of the Barcelona streetcar to give you an idea of what it sounds like for a streetcar like this to go by. Oh, the horrors, right? (laughs) This concept that, well, we like the Beltline the way it is now is a lot like, I don't know, a construction worker working on a dome stadium in Minneapolis before the roof gets put on and says in June, why does this thing need a roof? It's a beautiful day today. Let's enjoy this. Okay. Go watch a football game in Minneapolis in December and tell me if you feel the same way. Or November, owing to the fact that 
the team that plays inside the domed football stadium in Minneapolis needs that stadium for four months, and if they make the playoffs, even a fifth, which would be January, inhospitable in Minneapolis, I can assure you. I just rattled off half the months that that team needs to play in a facility. Sure, the Beltline's fine now. It is enjoyable. It's also getting to be quite cramped. And not everybody who's on it now, who utilizes it for a method of transportation, would continue doing so on the method they choose now, which could be their two feet, a little shoe leather, or a bike. It could be that they'd much rather not have to walk the length of the belt line that they are walking to get to and from whatever they're walking to and from to get to. That rail might actually lighten the crowd load a little bit. It will definitively take vehicular traffic off of the city's streets. And who doesn't want that? We want a more walkable, enjoyable Atlanta. Not just the Beltline, but Atlanta proper. I think about the times that I have to drive, say, to Fellini's on Ponce. Here's an example. And I have to take a car, usually through the Edgewood Shopping District, which is a two-lane road through a live-work area. And it's not very hospitable to pedestrian traffic because folks like me have to take the vehicle through Edgewood to get to Ponce. Now, I mean, we could walk that, but that's that's a sturdy walk. So if I had the option to take the streetcar instead to Ponce City Market and then walk a few blocks to Fellini's, well, I just cut the walk in two-thirds right there. I'm still getting my walk, but I'm also taking a vehicle off the streets going through Edgewood with all of its restaurants and other such establishments along the route. Maria Saporta is the founder, editor, and author at the Saporta Report, and she penned an op-ed yesterday that really nails a lot of the frustration. The majority of Atlantans who are for this rail concept have to be feeling. Literally, her op-ed starts, it's so frustrating to keep revisiting the issue of whether to build rail on the Beltline after years of repeated voter and citizen support for the concept. The initial vision for the Beltline 20 years ago included rail transit. Since then, there have been countless reaffirmations to bring rail transit to the 22-mile corridor. In 2016, Atlanta residents voted emphatically, 71%, she points out, for the more MARTA sales tax and project list that included Beltline Rail along multiple sections of the corridor. In 2018, 16 neighborhood planning units, NPUs, that border the Beltline endorsed the concept of rail. On Monday, Beltline Rail Now released its tally of the current support among NPUs for rail. In the past year, Beltline Rail Now sought reaffirmation from the 16 NPUs and 12 renewed or reaffirmed their support. Again, she says, an overwhelming majority of Atlantans, as represented by their NPUs, reaffirmed their support for rail along the Beltline. 
She makes another fantastic point, and I believe this is a warning as well. The Atlanta region is anticipating significant population growth, an additional 2.9 million people by 2050. And hey, just so you know, that's only 27 years from now. And the city of Atlanta will outpace the region by possibly doubling its population in that time frame. You think the Beltline's crowded now? You think the streets of Atlanta are congested now? That the downtown Midtown Corridor is packed now? Again, 2.9 million more people in Metro Atlanta in the next 27 years. With the city of Atlanta's population doubling, that's another 400,000 plus people just inside the city. I would argue that why are we even discussing this? Why have we not already broken ground? Why are we not already laying rail for this extension? Because in 27 years, a lot of this isn't going to be completed and we're going to wish it were. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be dismissive here, but in their little bullet points on their uh, website, betteratlantatransit.org, one question. Are we betting on technology of the past? Writing, rail on the Beltline was first proposed in 1999. Yes, when the Beltline was proposed from the inception. That was before the invention of Facebook or the iPhone, which does nothing, by the way, for transit. It was well before rideshare services, e-bikes, scooter rent. Are we really going to talk about the plight uh, of the e-bike and the scooter rentals throughout the city of Atlanta and how annoying they are? And by the way, they're on the Beltline as well. Autonomous vehicles, which we don't have, and other innovations disrupted how we get around urban areas. It's as if, okay, the argument being that the streetcar is part of you know, the, the train system that we've used since the 1800s. <laughs> like it's going to be some coal-fired locomotive gutting through the city. Come on, this is absurd. And, and this, this notion of uh, betting on a technology of the past as if uh, the Star Trek transporter is just around the corner or something like that. That the Jetsons-era flying car any day now We've been waiting since the 1960s, but any day now, y'all, the flying car is coming and we won't need the streetcar anymore. We as a city, a metro area, and a state underinvested from the jump in MARTA, and we are paying the price. And yet, without MARTA, we wouldn't have had countless Super Bowls, the Olympic Games, we wouldn't have all of these major concert venues uh, downtown, or the ability to get to and from them with relative ease. Without MARTA. And sadly, because we don't have enough of it, it's kind of crapped on. That's not current MARTA's fault. That is past Georgia, past Georgia legislature, and this very same mindset that we're fighting for the Beltline rail portion now. Are we sure we need it? Hell yes. We're overdue for needing it. And we got to stop pretending that it's just a relic of the past. Matthew Rao with Atlanta Beltline Rail Now, by the way, follow them on Facebook, join the group, fantastic conversation, points out in the Supporter Report op-ed, there are 16 American cities with streetcar projects underway and another 14 with light rail projects underway. The state of Florida, by the way, have you heard of the Bright Line? This isn't light-speed rail. This is somewhat high-speed rail, crisscrossing the entire state. Georgia, are you listening we need something like the Bright Line, which I believe is a public-private partnership. It connects the Miami airport to Fort Lauderdale to West Palm, eventually making its way to Orlando and Tampa and then Tallahassee. 
Last time I was in Florida, I paid $28 to ride the length of it. Give me the $28 to $50 option to ride a train where I can work, watch TV shows on my iPad or iPhone if I want to, and get from Tallahassee to Miami versus paying the turnpike or riding on the interstate for all those hours. Hell yes, sign me up. Anyway, I'm getting off the course here just a little bit. This has to stop. This conversation has to We, we got to stop talking and start doing. Because again, in 27 years, 2.9 million more Metro Atlantans will exist and another 400,000 or so just in the city of Atlanta. And I know it's cute to say we full when we really aren't. What is full are our methods of transportation now. Unfortunately, I have a job where I can't stop and become an investigative reporter or an investigative journalist, but I got to wonder how much of this Better Transit Atlanta group is also part of the Buckhead City movement. I'm sorry, was part of the Buckhead City movement because I'm getting that same energy. Back after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Tuesday. And it's not often. Yeah, I'm, you can hear it in my voice, right? I'm disappointed in myself already. It's not often that I go into a segment thinking, I have got to share this clip of Ron Paul. But I kind of need to share this clip of Ron Paul, which was uh, 14 years ago on the House floor when Ron Paul stood up and spoke against funding for an Israel attack on Gaza 14 years ago. Take a listen. Madam Speaker, I'd like to yield two minutes to the gentleman from Texas, Dr. Paul. I, the I thank is the recognized uh, for two minutes. gentlelady for yielding, and I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. Uh, Madam Speaker, um, I rise in opposition to this resolution, uh, not because uh, I am taking sides and, and picking who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, but... I'm looking at this more from the angle of being a uh, United States citizen and American, and I think resolutions like this uh, really do us great harm. Uh, in many ways, what's happening in the Middle East, and in particular with Gaza right now, we have some moral responsibility for both sides uh, in a way because we provide help and funding uh, for both Arab nations and Israel. And uh, so we definitely have a moral responsibility and especially now today the weapons being used to uh, kill so many Palestinians are American weapons and uh, American funds essentially are being used uh, for this. But there's a political liability which I think is something that we fail to look at because too often there's so much blowback from our intervention in areas that we shouldn't be involved in. You know, Hamas, if you look at the history, you'll find out that Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. And you say, well, yeah, that was better then and served its purpose, but we didn't want Hamas to do this. So then we as Americans say, well, we have such a good system, we're going to impose this on the world. We're going to invade Iraq and teach people how to be Democrats. We want free elections. So we encourage the Palestinians to have a free election. They do, and they elect Hamas. So we first indirectly and directly through Israel help establish Hamas. Then we have election. Then Hamas becomes dominant, so we have to kill them. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. During, during the 80s, uh, 
you know, we were allied with Osama bin Laden. And uh, we were contending with the Soviets. It was at that time our CAA thought it was good if we radicalized the Muslim world. So we financed the madrasa schools to radicalize the Muslims in order to compete with the, with the Soviets. There's too much blowback. There's a lot of reasons why we should oppose this resolution. It is not in the interest of the United States. It's not in the interest of Israel either. All right, so you're going to hear a little bit of that again because I'm going to play a piece uh, that was put together about five years ago with Mehdi Hassan and The Intercept. Listen to this. By empowering Sheikh Yassin and the Muslim Brotherhood, Israeli leaders thought they could divide and rule the occupied Palestinians, play them off against each other, secular nationalists against religious Islamists. So in 1978, when Yassin wanted to officially register his Islamic association, which was basically the precursor to Hamas, the Israelis were only too keen to help. Yassin built and grew a network of Islamist social institutions across Gaza, including schools and clubs and mosques, and Israel helped fund some of those projects. Most American politicians have no clue about any of this, although the former Republican Congressman Ron Paul once made this point on the floor of the House. Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. Arafat himself told an Italian newspaper, quote, Hamas is a creature of Israel. He even claimed that former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin admitted as much to him, calling it a fatal error. Now, you might be wondering, why should I believe mad Ron Paul or the famously <laughs> shady Yasser Arafat? Well, you don't have to. You can believe top Israeli and US officials who've basically owned up to all this. Brigadier Yitzhak Segev, for example, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza and later told a New York Times reporter that he helped finance the Islamic movement. The Israeli government gave me a budget, he said, and the military government gives to the mosques. Colonel David Hakam, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military, has admitted that the original sin was Israeli support for Yassin in the late 70s. But at the time, he has argued, nobody thought about the possible results. Well, Avner Cohen did. Cohen was the Israeli official who was responsible for religious affairs in Gaza for more than two decades, and who now says, quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. Yeah. Cohen's words. He actually wrote an official report to his superiors in the mid-1980s, warning them not to play divide and rule in the occupied territories and calling on Israel to, quote, break up this monster before this reality jumps in our face. But no one else on the Israeli side really took the possibility of blowback seriously at that time. They never do, do they? We on this side of the pond never seem to learn either. We love to meddle in other countries' affairs, thinking... Let's affect the outcome and work with the, I guess, lesser of two evils, right? I have nothing really poetic to point out by bringing this to your attention. I didn't know about it, and I figured I'd share it with you in case you didn't know about it either. Just learn something new today. But if that doesn't point out how important it is to learn from human history, then I just can't give you a better example. Instead, we try to suppress it. That's it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. My thank you to Representative Shea Roberts for joining us. Show notes and more at RonShowATL.com. We'll see you next time. Have a great one.